0: We're talking about the criminalization and decriminalization of drugs and uh, how the criminalization actually creates more crime than it prevents. Have a listen to what a cop says here uh, who's talking with an addict who's smoking fentanyl.
1: Hi there, put that knife away, please. What are you smoking? Fetty. Okay, just yeah. powder fentanyl? Yeah. Is that what you drop right there? Yeah. Right there? Yeah. Can you pick that up so someone else doesn't find it or a kid doesn't find that, please?
0: There you go. There's a, a cop having a calm conversation with somebody who's uh, uh, smoking fentanyl, a uh, highly, uh, highly addictive drug. And if not uh, used, uh somewhat wisely if there's such a thing it can kill you pretty much instantly uh i have an expert who's going to join us here his name is mark hayden he's the professor at university of british columbia's school of population and public health and we're going to talk about the decriminalization criminalization criminalization of drugs and all that kind of stuff here uh, over the next couple of segments mark welcome to the show thanks for being here thanks Yona. it's a pleasure to be on your show Thanks, man. Um, How effective has the um, criminalization of drugs been in preventing uh, drug-related crime uh, in this country, in your opinion?
1: Well, the first drug law in Canada was 1908, um, the Opium Act. And so we have over 100 years to reflect on the impacts of prohibition and what we can conclusively say it has been an absolute and miserable failure. As a social policy, it flunked.
0: Yeah, it says here in the article that I'm reading that no country would declare war against an enemy after giving it money to buy weapons and raise an army. Yet that's precisely what we're doing in our war on drugs. People do not use illegal drugs because of their cost, their high costs. uh, But suppliers only supply them because of that cost. It's money over money, right? I mean, Mark, at the end of the day, it's all about cash.
1: Yeah, there there is. You can argue. I've been standing in front of audiences for decades talking about the failure of the war on drugs, failure of drug prohibition and advocating for an evidence based health approach to drugs in our society. And it's funny, over the decades, it's um, I can use economic arguments, I can use health arguments, I can use the increase of crime arguments. It doesn't really matter. Any way you look at the process of drug prohibition, it it comes up as a failure. It doesn't work. It does not protect our children is the absolute bottom line.
0: Yeah, and we're looking at things nowadays. I mean, you know, I'm an old school guy, but now, we're you know, we're looking at stuff. I have articles here that talk about uh, the study that uncovers, Canadian study uncovers significant reductions in substance abuse after using psychedelics, you know, drugs to help reduce the dependency on drugs. Um, I'm not sure we're... Moving in the right direction, you know, meth, you know, methadone and suboxone to help with those that have opioid disorder, uh, opioid use disorder. Uh, I mean, are we just putting a Band-Aid, You think on the actual, uh, on the actual wound, or are any of these programs, these social programs, making a difference to, to help turn the turn the, the tide a little bit? Well, the the, pre- the
1: process that I recommend is first of all acknowledging that prohibition doesn't work. It is a miserable failure. It does not protect our children. It does not save us money as a society. It does not reduce access to drugs. And so the process using the criminal justice system as a model to approach drugs doesn't work. We know that. So what would happen if we used a health system? So what would happen if we used a health system that was responsive to evidence? Because right now what we have is these ideological battles in our society. People with different ideological stances argue with each other about what's best. What would happen if we did it differently? What would would happen if we said drug policy should be like cancer treatment? With cancer treatment, it keeps changing, and it keeps changing as the evidence changes. What would happen if we said, okay, we're not gonna criminalize drugs anymore, we give it to the health folks, the health administrators of the world, and then we say, do your best, and we will monitor and engage you with a discussion around what the evidence of what you're doing is. And then you change it based on the evidence. What would happen if we had an evidence-based approach to drug policy? That's essentially the fundamental question that I ask.
0: And what's the answer?
1: Well, the answer is we would be on the right track because we know we have, as I say, over a hundred years of prohibition. It's a miserable, it's an expensive, miserable failure. And so an evidence-based approach says we basically need to start looking at, let's go back to your first question. So does drug prohibition increase crime? So what we know is that people who sell drugs en masse, the, the downtown east side, are organized criminals. You know, it's not just one individual, it's groups of criminals. And when you have groups of criminals working together, it's called organized crime. And now these are essentially business people. They're there for the money. Now, in, if you're running a normal legal business and you have a conflict with a competitor, you solve the problem by going to lawyers first. And if that doesn't work, you go to a judge and you go to a court that we have processes in our society that solve problems. If you're a criminal that is selling drugs, you still have conflicts. But you have to solve your conflicts in a different way, which basically means shooting people. I mean, as I say, I've been talking about this for decades. And what I listen to in the radio is, you know, Sunday morning will come around and I'll be driving somewhere and I'll listen to, a report and it says an individual or individuals were shot. It was a targeted shooting and the individuals who were shot were known to the police. It's the same story. So what does that actually mean? How I interpret that is essentially it's it's a drug war. It's, it's a conflict between organized crime groups. And this is how they solve conflict is they shoot each other. So it essentially is this ongoing criminal process. It, it was funny, I've, I've worked with the VPD quite a bit over the years. I was one of their trainers on mental health and addictions. And the 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 the, 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 the inspector who was in charge of vice once um, was talking to me informally. And what he said is how the police work is they gather information for a period of time and then they make a big bust and they take out a lot of the kingpins and then they go back to gathering information. And what he knew is the moment they made the big bust is there would be an explosion of violence in the downtown east side because not only did they take out the, the leaders, but they also created a job opportunity for other people. And then yeah. immediately they would fight to get the job. And so they would, the, way they, the way they get promoted is they battle each other until a leader emerges. Oh. And that's just the process. And so that doesn't work for us. It doesn't work for any of us. It doesn't work for parents. It doesn't work for community members.
0: Let's have a listen. I want you before we get back here with my uh, my guest, Mark Hayden. Um, I want you to have a listen to a man. Um, he's nine months sober in this clip uh, on how difficult it is and uh, kind of how to live uh, live with it. So, uh, run that tip uh, clip for me, there, Tim. It's it's all about the individual. I mean, and what they what they want for themselves. When it comes down to addicts, um, you can't force them to get clean. They gotta to want to do it themselves. There you go, Mark. uh, It's really the the whole story is, um, you know, you can't you can't criminalize somebody uh, and force them to get the help that they need. It doesn't seem to work very well. Um, I'm even finding situations where people are um, incarcerated and uh, end up with a a stronger, more active drug habit in um, in prison than outside of prison. Does that factor into your into your work, into your study, looking at what incarceration brings?
1: Yeah, jail is crime school for the same three reasons that Harvard Law is up across training school, because three things happen in jail that happen in Harvard Law. One is you learn some stuff. Two is you're constantly told who you are. And three is you make connections. So people graduate from Harvard Law and do very well in our society. People graduate from jail often more hardened and more dedicated, more focused, and quite frankly, more skillful as criminals. Jail does not work as a solution to a health problem.
0: So what are the what are the potential? Um, so bearing all this in mind, um, what do you what do you think if, if I gave you if I gave you a, I guess, somewhat of a unlimited budget and kind of a, a key to the problem and said, OK, Mark, uh, you got a lot of experience here. What would you do to solve the opioid crisis in Canada um, based on you know what you know and what you study? What would you do?
1: Well, I would start by saying it's not a prohibition problem. Take all the money that we're spending on police courts, jails, border guards, the whole criminal industrial system, and say, okay, that net money is now going towards health. And then you ask the health folks what they do, and then you monitor them closely, and you change the program based on the evidence that you're seeing. So it would be an iterative process. You know, it would probably involve initially engaging people in health centers, people who are consistently addicted to opiate drugs, can now receive their drugs through health services in a way that is an engaging, positive, supportive health process. It wouldn't just be methadone, it would be everything. It would be heroin, it would be fentanyl. The older folks like heroin, the younger folks tend to prefer, prefer fentanyl now. But it's a process of engagement where it would be a whole lot cheaper, quite frankly, to allow people to access drugs through a health system. The current process is really expensive, reduce the costs, give the money to health and see what they do and then monitor it closely. What we should see is reduced sales of drugs. We should see increased health of our society. We should see reduced overdose outcomes. We should see reduced HIV and Hep C and then continue to give the health services that are providing these services feedback and let them tweak the program to get it right. I would also suggest the goal is to minimize the harms of drugs, but maximize the benefits of drugs. In my world, I also work now, I've moved from mostly talking about drug policy to talk about the potential healing for psychedelics. In my world, I would also have psychedelic healing centers. I would have um, a variety of different psychedelics used by, by very skilled therapists to heal PTSD, depression, anxiety, a variety of different mental health diagnoses that could be treated more, more inexpensively and quicker and more durably than existing mental health medications. So if we said the goal was to minimize the harms and maximize the benefits of drugs, then we would have a very different model.
0: I got to tell you, I, you know, I've been at this a long time, you know, many decades, and I'm sure we could share a lot of war stories. Uh, I can't tell you, um, on one hand, out of the thousands of patients that I've worked with, I can't tell you on one hand, a success story related to somebody going on to an Ibogaine or ayahuasca program or, you know, nowadays testing with, uh, with uh, magic mushrooms and, and, and such like that, LSD in the U.S. Um, they, they seem to work fairly well with some mental health issues, bad dreams, PTSD, as you said, but I don't see it curbing the, the desire and the need for the use of drugs on a daily basis. Tell me something I'm missing. Well,
1: what we need is health research. So what we need to do is try people that have different types of diagnoses, put them through different programs. I mean, I I worked in the addiction services for most of my career. I had 28 years running an addiction services program. And you're right, our successes were miserable, quite frankly. We never had anybody coming in with a transformative experience saying, thank you very much, I'm healed. It never happened. So it, it's a difficult population to treat. And so what we need is more tools. We need a lot more tools. And then we need to monitor the outcomes of the treatment programs and change them as they start to evolve and, 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 and affect people. It's interesting that I, I as I say, I worked for a program called uh, Qi Integrated Health and we're running a psychedelic treatment program starting with ketamine. And I've looked, at my, I've looked at my wife, who's a psychiatrist, straight in the eye. And what I said is the work that we are going, going to doing now is going to transform your profession. Because if you look at existing mental health treatments, antidepressants don't work very well. In fact, there's lots of evidence that says they don't work better than placebo. And yet we do know that psychedelic treatments are more effective. So let's let evidence guide us, not these ideological positions.
0: Wow. So uh, what kind of conversations go on at your table? You know, what, what, You know, your wife is pure science and all medical, I'm sure, and I'm sure yeah. quite talented at what she does. You you're, you're seem to have a much more touchy-feely kind of approach to it all. Um, is there a place where you land together?
1: Um, absolutely. You know, I mean, she's interested. She's interested in the work and she's interested in the science as well. I mean, we're both interest. We both believe that science should guide it. And, and these ideological positions actually don't work. And there's people that are ideologically against psychedelic treatments in spite of the growing evidence for their uh, for their effectiveness. And I just think that Health Canada should approve clinical trials. It should allow them to go through the normal turning a molecule into a medicine process, and then people should be allowed to prescribe them in the context of health. And then we just watch the outcomes and we adjust based on the outcomes that we see.
0: Mark, where do you think CBD THC fits in all of this medical use of cannabis?
1: Well, it's interesting because the, there was a medical track in the Canadian evolution of this and there was a lot of discussion around it being medicalized and then it suddenly changed and it became recreationalized. Is that a word? I'm not sure. And so the whole medical discussion kind of got squashed by the, rec- by the recreational movement I personally think we need to look at the medical impacts and, and you you've nailed two of them. THC is different from CBD and so what we need is we need evidence to be able to recommend these things. Physicians, it was interesting the the world of the medical world was not very well engaged by the cannabis community and so you can't normally, currently most physicians aren't willing to talk to you about cannabis because they weren't informed and they weren't engaged and it wasn't actually turned into a medicine. So I think physicians should be engaged and they need to be engaged with evidence. And so we need to look at that question. What what conditions should CBD used for? Does it help people sleep disorders is a good question. Does it help with people with their eating, you know, glaucoma, whatever, the list of things that are talked about um, should be subject to science. And then that science should be available to physicians and they should be able to prescribe it or recommend it based on the evidence that they have on hand.